Hello, my friends. You are listening to Grit and Grace. My name is Taverly, and I am your host. I'm here to share my entrepreneurial journey with you, and we'll be bringing on some amazing women who've been helping me, mentoring me, and inspiring me on how Grit and Grace helps them crush it in business, relationships, fitness, family, friends, and all that good stuff. Now, let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Grit and Grace. And today I'm super excited. I have the distinct pleasure of having Tamara Banks with me. And if you haven't heard of her before, you are going to learn so much about this amazing woman that I have with me. She's an Emmy Emmy award-winning journalist, and she has the statement of one person can make a difference. And that's more than just words to her. Her life experiences, connectability, and sense of humor have made her a sought-after keynote speaker and MC. Tamara is a freelance journalist, talk show host, and documentary filmmaker, focusing on social justice and dedicated to creating transformative social change through excellence in journalism. Her areas of expertise include social justice and political issues nationally and internationally, particularly in the Sudan, the South Sudan and Darfur and in other parts of the globe where there is little or no news coverage about the crimes against humanity and genocide. Her documentary short film, The Long Journey Home, which is amazing by the way, was accepted into the 2009 Hollywood Film Festival, Holly Shorts. Her work has been featured on numerous news networks, including CNN, ABC News, World Report, BBC, Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera America, Fox News, and so many other radio stations and newspapers over the past 20 years. As a correspondent, she has extensive experience in covering a variety of historical issues and stories like the Columbine Massacre, the Aurora movie theater shootings, and the massive floods in Colorado, which is from 2013, which is so close to my heart because it it went through my hometown. She's also experienced in covering major hot-button topics like gun rights debate and marriage equality. Tamara has traveled to Uganda to interview child soldiers as well as to Rwanda, where she reported on that country's post-genocide challenges and successes. I mean, wow. She's covered the devastating earthquake in, in Haiti and embedded with the U.S. Army in, and Iraqi security forces to report on yet another untold, untold story, which we're going to talk about today. So my friends, you are in for an absolute treat today because she is normally on the other side of the microphone or the other side of the camera. And I wanted Tamara to join us today, not just to learn from her experiences as a journalist, which is 20 years of covering peace and conflict around the globe, but for you to learn more about this amazing change maker, this woman behind all the stories that she shares. And I, I want to share this one quote that um, I think is, is really amazing. And it's from the former commissioner on human rights. And he quoted Tamara as she is the, has the unusual eye for a story, sensing both the important issues at hand and the essential human dimension, able to synthesize and present complex issues in an always interesting, engaging, and inspiring way. Tamara, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for such a wonderful introduction. I, I think that you're amazing. I love that you have such a passion about telling stories that are difficult to share 
share. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit more today about those stories in your career, but also how that has impacted you as a woman, because I think that, you know, you are probably a very different person after each, um, after each, you know, story or project that you work on. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you bet. Thank you for the invitation. So let's start by hearing a little bit more about you, like where are you from, you know, where were you raised? Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Um, well, I have a, an incredible family. Um, I come from a family of overachievers. Uh, overachievers. Hmm. My, um, my little brother and sister are both dancers. They live in New York. They, um, they studied under incredible people around the world. And my brother does more music, uh, musical theater, and my sister uh, has done more of the sort of the avant-garde jazz, modern uh, dance kind of thing. Cool. And uh, yeah, so they live in New York. Um, my uh, mom was a, um, an educator, but before she died, she'd spent the, probably the last 10 years or more, probably 20 years of her career in um, medical research oh. in, uh, in Albuquerque at the University uh, she worked at UNM, University of New Mexico, and then at the, um, the kind of the equivalent of the School of Mines in uh. in New Mexico, in the southern part of the state. And then my father was a physician, and he opened up a number of clinics in rural populations in uh, in Mexico. For some reason, he just loved Mexico, and um, he spent pretty much all of his career, uh, most of his career anyway, in in rural parts of that country. Mm, so where were you raised? So uh, a little bit in Mexico City, actually. Okay. Uh, my family, my dad's family is from Louisiana. So we spent uh, quite a bit of time there. Mm. Uh, my mom's family is from Iowa, but I'd only been there. I've only been there once, maybe twice now. Um, and my, um, and then we spent time in Albuquerque and in Denver. So mm. kind of uh, south part of the country and the Southwest. So how did you end up in Colorado? So my uh, parents moved us here when I was six and you know, who wants to, you know, leave Denver once you get to Denver, right? right? So uh, I spent um, six years here and went off and we went to different places. Then I came back and decided I wanted to go to uh, school here in Colorado. So I graduated high school early and came back and went to the University of Northern Colorado and um, the rest is history. Denver is an amazing uh, city. Uh, Colorado is an incredible state. Lots of news happening here. I started reporting here in, uh, was it 1993? Something like that. And, um, you know, but, um, and it's, the airport is easy to get to different parts of the world. I can go from here to Europe to and get to Africa in a couple of uh, stops. Yeah. So. And they've added a whole bunch of new flights in like the last five years to mm -hmm. like direct flights to longer destinations, which exactly. makes such a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. It really does make a big difference. Um, yeah. So for the moment, Denver is home, but that, that probably that will change in the not too distant future. Yeah, you have you have a wandering soul too. I I think that we can connect around around that because once you've visited other parts of the world and you visited in different ways, you've been, you know, working and researching, 
you know, really um, complex topics, but you've also been able to see other parts of the world. And when I think that Americans leave the United States and go somewhere else, they learn so much about what they don't know. And it's, right. it's creates this thirst, right, for more learning. And I know that it definitely did that for me. And I'm sure you have that sort of wandering soul in you too. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And and what we, I mean, we, we can certainly read things, read books, read um articles online, we can watch documentaries, we can watch uh, films, but there is nothing that replaces actually going someplace and sitting with people and hearing their stories and mm -hmm. breaking bread with them and um, even uh, being in dangerous situations. And you begin to understand why that particular place became dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, people are not innately evil. People are, I believe, um, organically good and things that happen to us in our lives make us uh, desperate which can make us um, make bad choices or make us um, encourage us to or prompt us to to make choices that hurt others so what i've learned is that there are more things that bring us together that are uh, that make us uh, alike than there are things that separate us and make us different we all want you know food on the table roof over our heads, school for our kids, a safe place to live. We all do. All human beings do. So when we start to look at our similarities and, and put aside the differences, then we can start from a place where we can come to the table and we may not all agree on every. I mean, we can't agree on, on everything. We have different life experiences and different opinions. But we, when we start looking at our similarities and embrace our differences rather than trying to make our differences, um, have somebody come over to our side and convince them and variety of ways, then we start running into problems. But if we can just come to the table and have a conversation about our differences, mm. and guess what? We might, we might learn something more about what we already believe, or we might be convinced to think differently. Mm. And what would be the problem with that? Mm, that's so beautifully put. I, uh, I had a similar experience to something just like that when I was in Istanbul, which was like a year into the Syrian refugee crisis. And there were millions of Syrian refugees that had just flooded into Istanbul. And it was right on the cusp of when it was like recommended for Americans to be in Istanbul. And I was actually there for a conference and a meeting, but I went a day early because I was so fascinated with that part of the world that I just wanted a day. I wanted it which is never enough, but I wanted a day to go and experience the culture. And I, you know, we were staying at a fancy hotel for business and I wanted to leave the hotel and, you know, go tour around. And there's some communities I wanted to go visit and I wanted to go to a specific mosque, like not the big famous one, but the off the beaten track ones. And when I was leaving the hotel, the other Americans I was traveling with, they're like, uh, no, you can't. I'm like, what? And they're like, no, you can't. They're, you know, it's, it's not safe. They're, you know, taxis are not regulated. And so I found a way to work with the hotel to find a good, um, like a tourist, somebody that they knew that they could trust that would, you know, give me the experience of visiting local communities. Uh -huh. And you know what, this man took me to meet his family uh -huh. and took me in, into the mosque that they pray at. And I learned so much about, what it means to be Muslim without the radical side to it. And I had absolutely no idea what that was going to be like. And uh, I spent the day pretty much with very few people that spoke English and got to be a part of their traditions and their day. And we walked and we shared. And when I hugged him goodbye at the end of the day, I cried a little because I felt like, oh, 
like they're they're just like me, like their families, and they welcomed me with open arms. This strange woman mm-hmm. that they didn't know that they had no plans to spend any time with me, and it was it was probably one of the best days that I've experienced in my life. And I, it is because I was able to all relate to their, to their family and their lifestyle. It's different than mine, but it was, it was pretty darn amazing. So I think that you put that really beautifully. And when we see people as people, we are less likely to say, well, let's just go bomb them. Let's just, you know, our way or the highway. Uh, If you're not, if you're not with us, you're against us. We're less likely to say that if we recognize that, that these are human beings too and that uh, we all have a, a, a place on earth. And like I said, for the most part, we all want the, the same things. Yeah. So let me ask you, how did you get, well, to, there's two questions. Number one, how did you go into the field of journalism? That's one question. And then number two, how did you become so passionate about this? Like, where did that come from? Um, I've always known that I wanted to be a journalist. Like, I, I'm the kid who's who was writing in a journal, not so much a diary, but a journal of writing stories and um, some stories about my family or mm. some made up people and just telling stories. And I didn't realize it then, but that's what I was doing. I was reporting. And then, um, when I loved, loved, and still love 60 minutes. Mm. And I remember I'm the kid who instead of on, um, Sunday evening, trying to stay outside and play as much as possible. As soon as I heard on TV, I was running inside to watch 60 Minutes. And I loved, I've always loved the news for some reason, as even as a kid. And growing up, there weren't people that looked like me. You know, the closest came that came to anything was Barbara Walters. You know, a woman, here's a woman doing a job that I'd only seen white men do. And I one time I was watching her and I'd seen interviews with, um, Fidel Castro in the past, but this particular interview, Barbara Walters was interviewing him. Oh. And yeah, and so it wasn't in an office setting and his office was a very sterile place. It was on what I guess was his yacht hmm. and they're floating across the water. And here she is in this beautiful scarf interviewing, doing very, um, looking very glamorous, but doing this very important interview. And here he is, you know, bad hombre, so to speak, as somebody else would say, with this big stogie and just talking away. And I thought, you know, here's, she's interviewing this person. And I was only, I don't know, nine or eight, or I couldn't barely been 10. But here's this person being interviewed who everyone has seen as persona non grata, but we're seeing a different side of him. Not that he was warm and fuzzy, but just a, another slice of this human being, a, 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 a more human side. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So that was one of my inspirations. And the other person I loved watching when I was very little was um, Ed Bradley who then later I met in Denver. I was uh, the president of the Colorado Association of Black Journalists and the Denver Press Club honored him with the Damon Runyon Award. And I was the one who got to um, present him with the award. Oh my gosh, I just got goosebumps. That's so amazing. He was so cool. He gave me his cell phone number, took me under his wing. Oh. You ever need anything? La, da, da, da. And I was a cub reporter. I mean, you yeah. know. It, but um, you, 
you meet these amazing people. And so the question to the answer to your question about, you know, how did I get inspired? I think because of my, my parents, my uh, mom uh, truly loved to travel and gave us lots of uh, experiences, just even within the U.S. Mm. Uh, she did a lot of research, uh, me uh, medical research around cancer, and she did a lot of work in reservations in the Southwest. So mm. she would, if she had to go, she would take us. She couldn't afford a babysitter, so she, you know, get us out of school on Friday, pack us in the car, and we'd drive to um, Shiprock, Arizona, or Flagstaff, or um, southern part of New Mexico to where the reservations were. We got a chance to see people in a different setting and different light. So that was just national. And then from, from beyond there, I just was interested in what else is out there. I don't feel like my neighbor is just the person across the street or next door. My neighbor's across the ocean. My neighbor is on the other side of the globe. And so um, it's just fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> and you, it sounds like at a young age, you got really comfortable with the the aspects of traveling that a lot of people that don't travel very often find it really stressful. Whereas, you know, I'm like you because I've had, you know, I've traveled significantly. Um, packing a bag and going somewhere new is to me just exciting. There's a feeling I get that is just so, so mm -hmm. uplifting. And it's like, you just know that what's going to happen in, in the next few days of being in that new place is going to change you. And it's mm -hmm. incredible. But a lot of people find that really stressful. I myself, boy, if I could live nomadically, I think I would. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I always like having a place to come home to but I am, I feel very blessed to be able to have that, that, uh, that characteristic of being able to sleep anywhere and be anywhere and meet with anyone and not have to worry about creature comforts um, yeah. and really getting that experience of being with, with the, the people uh, yeah. in that particular country or space. Right. Well, you touched on something I wanted to dive into a little bit more, and that's being a female in this industry. I mean, mm -hmm. as you started in your journalism career, I mean, what was it like, you know, from 20 years ago to what is it like today as a female journalist? Because that cannot have been an easy sort of like glass ceiling to break through. No, even like I said, even today, it's still not. I mean, you... You look across the major network channels, and especially depending on which city you're in, um, you see pretty much the same type of person, right? You don't see very many women of color. Um, but I've always felt different or known that I was different. And, and what I mean by that is a woman of color, African-American woman, but my, uh, my dad's black, my mom's white. So just that in and of itself, you know, out the gate you're, you're kind of different to begin with, even though I identify as a, a woman of color. Um, and so it's interesting being in, in a space where uh, no one quite, quite sees the world like you do uh, as a woman or a woman of color. I remember in um, newsrooms I've worked in where we would hear, hey, there's a shooting at this particular corner in this particular neighborhood. And it, it was a black neighborhood. And I would say, well, you know, that sounds interesting. We should probably roll on that. Well, you know, it's such and such neighborhood. It's probably, it's just gang kids killing each other. And I said, but those are kids. That's somebody's son or daughter or brother or um, daughter or sister or cousin. And um, so somehow those lives didn't matter as much. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then also just traveling internationally, I'm keenly aware that uh, as a woman, I, I um, you know, I'm more vulnerable, can be more vulnerable, and therefore can make my team more vulnerable. And what I mean by team is, you know, the two or maybe two other people that are traveling with me, a photographer, a sound person, maybe a producer. So uh, I, I'm just keenly aware of those, those taking those risks that it's not just me, it's the other people that are with me, you know, my fixer, my security people. Um, so you think about those things and you don't carry the fear, but you just have to be aware and have your head on a swivel and pay attention to what's happening and then be prepared on the, on the front end, like know where you're going, know as much Intel as you can and do your research. Um, and then on the flip side, oftentimes as a woman, I can kind of slip on by because in many places people don't see you because you're a woman. Um, or I can get an interview in a different kind of a way, instead of going mano a mano with somebody, I might be able to better appeal to their um, compassionate side because I am a woman. So it can go, it can play in, in my favor, but when it plays uh, against me, I'm keenly aware, like I'm, I'm rarely surprised, like I almost got arrested in Iraq. Mm. Um, and while I was sitting there on the curb, with my crew, my photographer and sound guy, the, uh, then the Iraqi uh, soldiers behind me apparently were looking at certain body parts. And um, my sound guy, I heard him say, come on, man, if that was your sister, you wouldn't treat her like that. I heard him just say that in the mm. background. I'm like, okay, something's happening behind me. Yeah. yeah. So we were about to go to jail that day too. So that was, yeah. I figure if I'm not almost arrested. I haven't really done my job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of an interesting philosophy, but you are, you know, you definitely are comfortable pushing boundaries. Yeah, that's an interesting philosophy. And I'm sure you must experience that more internationally than like domestically, but do you, have you found that it, being a female has given you less opportunity to to report on certain stories. I mean, you gave one example of, of a shooting incident, but um, overall in like working your ranks up into developing your credibility in the field, has that been the same, would you say, as, as a man in terms of what you can have the opportunity to produce? No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's especially a woman of color. And people of color as a whole, we know we have to jump higher, run faster, uh, show up 100% more. And that's just part of the, that's just part of the training. It's like how we train our, our boys and young men as they go out in the streets and drive. It's like when you stop by a police officer, you have that conversation. So this is, the, this is what we know growing up. But I also don't see myself as a victim. Like, I just know that that's kind of the world that we live in. And I'll keep working to change that and bring up uh, other young women of color behind me and encourage them to, you know, don't listen to those stereotypes that the world is telling you um, because you, you are magnificent. You can do anything you want. Just know, don't be naive about how you present and how, it, how you look to other people. But I have, I feel like, yeah, while in some cases it, um, you know, had to prove myself more in certain, certain uh, circumstances, that didn't stop me. So I don't feel like I let anything get in the way. 
You know what I mean? Like yeah, I you got, were aware of the issues, but you were just willing to work to overcome them. It was just more of a, you know, you, you knew you had to do it a little better, maybe work a little harder, but it wasn't going to stop you. Exactly. In fact, um, that it became kind of a challenge and, yeah. and, um, and not growing up with my dad around was, you know, so people say, Oh my gosh, how, how terrible for you. Well, yeah, sure. Kind of suck. But you know what? That also made me more uh, resilient and independent and not feeling like I had to be taken care of and that I could do it um, if I needed to, if I, whatever that is. And that's including a career. Don't sit there and whine about it. Do what you need to do and find if that path isn't working for you, create your own path. Yeah. And that's how we become entrepreneurs and innovators. And I think that's where women and women of color in particular are very good at being innovators and entrepreneurs because the path that's been paved is for one segment of the population. So rather than sitting around saying, I can't take that path, so what? Make your own path. And guess what's probably better? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, talked, I've experienced that just a little bit, I think, since I started my own company last year, which we talked a little bit about recently. Mm-hmm. And some of the statistics that came out to me when I, I've never considered myself the minority. Um, I just, you know, I, I've led a successful life. Nothing has ever stopped me. And finding out as a female business owner, my, I, it's like, they tell me you have like 2% chance of succeeding. Like female owned businesses have like 2% chance of succeeding. And it's like less than 13% of female owned businesses ever reach, you know, six figures. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what? And then I found this crazy statistic from 2017, which I've talked about more in depth in another podcast about, you know, it's, it's less than 1% of 2017 venture capital went to female owned businesses. And this just actually like blew my mind because I didn't realize that I was going to be fighting an uphill battle just because I'm a woman. I, you know, I, and, the, and same thing, it doesn't, it's not going to stop me. And it's, it's definitely a little more of a challenge. And I'm like you, you know, you, you poke that challenge button and I am guns a blazing, but, right. um, but it's, it was kind of a new feeling for me and I hadn't really experienced that before. And it's, it's, it's definitely something that I, I hope that we are in the midst in our, our world right now of changing. Yeah. I mean, we, we have to, because we can't continue to go on like this and, you know, to jump into politics, what's happening right now with the tone of um, the political tone, the racial tones, misogyny, right. chauvinism, homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, every phobia you can think of, it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's ugly. But you know what? At least now we can't pretend that all those things don't exist. Yeah. So if there's, if there's ever a reason to get up and do something now's the time. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Well, I want to talk a little more about sort of you and your, in your career side. And how did you like, how did you determine what era you wanted to go in, in terms of the documentary side versus being a freelance journalist? Like how did that develop in your career? Because I know that you, those are kind of two different things, right? Uh, journalism and filmmaking. Yes. Filmmaking. Right. Um, yes and no. It's all under the umbrella of, of storytelling. Yeah. And so film, to me, documentary filmmaking is still rooted in, in journalism and in news because um, I still want to tell the facts, you know, and, and documentaries give you that time to, to dig deeper and be a little bit um, more detailed about the particular story and take a broader broader approach. Uh, not all 
documentary filmmakers feel like that they feel like they can take a little bit of creative um, liberty, but uh, I feel like, I guess because of my news background, but I, mm. I just want to tell the story the way, the way truthfully, you know, the, yeah. the way it is. But um, what I like about freelancing in overall is that I get to, if you're not imp- invited to the party, make your own party. Mm. So that's where I made my own path instead of waiting for, you know, whatever uh, news organization to hire me, I'll, I'll create my own news story, go out and get it, pitch it to various news organizations and the very news organizations that, um, you know, might otherwise hire full time a white male are now picking up my mm-hmm. stories and contracting me out as a black female. Um, I don't know why, but, but I, got, I created my own path and made mm-hmm. my own path that way. With the filmmaking, um, it's interesting. It's, it takes um, a lot more time, obviously, but you don't realize how much more time it takes to shoot even a, a short. And so my documentary short, the one that was in the Hollywood Film Festival, was, is just under 14 minutes. And I was in South Sudan. I shot for over two weeks. I didn't, you know, let the tape roll for the moment I got off the plane, but I shot a lot of hours of, of tape. And when I went to Iraq and covered uh, the war and, and did that story, uh, not the body count, but this particular mission I was focusing on, we were there for a month, maybe a little over a month, hours upon hours of, of tape. And that ended up being only an hour documentary slash news story and, and included an interview with um, General Petraeus. So it's a, it, it's a different shift in your mind, whereas in news, you're sort of thinking of, let's get to the heart of it real quickly and tell the story, because that's how much time we have, versus a documentary, or even in a short, you've got time to peel back some layers, and that both of those are fun. Yeah, that's interesting. And thanks for clarifying that because I, I kind of wasn't sure how that worked. And, and are you typically contracted for these um, projects in advance? Like even if you have to pitch it, but are you contracted in advance or do you do any of the work like upfront and then bring it back and present it? All of the above. In a perfect okay. world, I, I say, hey, Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC, NPR, PBS, I've got this great story idea. And in a perfect world, they say, great, we'll contract you out. We'll give you a photographer uh, and a producer and a sound person. And then I'm on payroll immediately until that project is done. That's the best way. That's the best scenario. The next scenario is like, hey, you know, why don't you go out and see what it is? Or maybe I'm not even quite sure what it is. And I'll, I'll just go on out and get the story knowing in my heart that it is a good story and I will get a great story. And then I'll come back and, and pitch it and then pieces of it will be picked up. Um, then there's cases where not immediately, uh, you know, somebody wants it. It's, um, you know, might sit on the shelf. So what I do with that, those assets is I use those through my keynote speaking and talking about um, crimes against humanity and a woman being in combat and conflict zones and use those um, still photos and video and interviews as part of a presentation around a keynote event. So it all gets used somehow or another. And it all, all three of those aspects go into this layer, this, this um, 
conglomeration that we call Tamara Banks, the freelance yeah. journalist. Yeah. yeah. Or, <laughs> Taz. Yeah. or Taz. Or Taz. I added exactly. Taz. Taz is, Taz is your <laughs> nickname. And I didn't, tell, I didn't tell people how we met. We met, we're just trying to think of whether it was like 2014 or 2015 mm-hmm. when I, I worked, uh, you know, alongside with uh, Mayor Hancock at the Denver Sister Cities program. Uh-huh. And I think he came in as an MC, but I'm pretty sure it's our friend Derek Okubo that, or was, I think it was, that introduced us and you guys had been friends in the past or maybe it was councilman brooks i I can't remember but we met a few years ago and it's it was great we did a little work together and from then i was just really able to dive in and and follow along all the great stuff that you're doing so thank you um, i think it's important for people to know how we know each other i didn't yeah that's right I do randomly call people out of the blue to be on my podcast, but I, <laughs> when I first spoke to you about this, I told you that from the, from the moment my podcast was first, when I won the podcast contest, you were like at the top of my list. I'm like, oh my gosh, I know. Really? And I, I honestly, I wanted to give myself a little time to get really comfortable in this space and what I'm doing before I brought you on because hmm. I wanted to make sure that I was ready for you. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's funny, but you do a great it, job. If you look at my notes from like back in like even March and April, I have, there's five people on that list and you were at the top. So thank you. That's quite an honor. (laughs) Well, thank you. I, um, you know, one of the things that I I think about a lot, and I think it's because I experienced this myself. One of the projects I did when I was working at Denver Sister Cities was this trilateral relationship project between a mayor in China and a mayor in Africa and a U.S. mayor. So Denver has a sister city in Nairobi and one in Kunming, China. And Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, threw a chunk of money at you know, this concept to find out how a a Chinese and African in a U.S. city at the political level, all the way down to the community level could work together. And it's still to this day, one of the most favorite projects I've worked on. And it changed me. You know, we were rebuilding a primary school in in the largest informal settlements in Kenya. And it it changed me uh, uh, down to the deep part of my soul because, uh, it was just, you know, very difficult to see how, um, you know, how these children were still flourishing, even though, you know, boy, this human spirit is amazing. Mm-hmm. So their spirit was amazing, but I, I realized how much of my own life I took for granted. And it definitely changed me in, in so many ways. And it makes me wonder how all these experiences of these stories that you've covered have changed you. You know, how, and it's big, that's a big question because there's been so many, but if you could give me a, a few examples of how or what situations you've been in that have truly changed you or impacted mm-hmm. you. I think, um, you know, I, I never grew up privileged. So I hear often a lot of white people say, oh, I, you know, I feel so privileged. I, I didn't come from that background. Um, so it's not that. I mean, we didn't know we didn't have normal food like other people growing up. So I, I, I didn't see ourselves as poor. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, how did we ever do this kind of stuff as my mom or single mom raising three kids and all of us went to college. So in that regard, uh, I feel connected with the, with, um, people, but I could never ever say that I felt in danger for my life. That's a whole different story. So when, when I feel like, Oh gosh, you know, (laughs) I need a new car battery. I've got a car. <laughs> yeah. I have a car, 
right? It may not be my BMW that I'm getting soonish, but it is, you know, it is a car. And so, you know, I realize how blessed I, I really am and ha have been. And I also think of at a deeper level, I think about, um, you know, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. And so when people ask me, am I afraid when I go into these places, I don't carry that fear with me, part of, partly because you just can't operate that way. You can't right. operate in fear, like just don't go then, because uh, I wouldn't be able to, to, to think on my feet and think of the stories and think of the shots or work with my photographer if I have a photographer, videographer coming with me. So I just don't think about the fear in that moment or that danger. But I do realize how tomorrow's just not promised. There have been times when I've gone into South Sudan or even Iraq, um, Haiti, I mean, name a place. And um, a couple of times in particular, I, as I was leaving Denver, leaving my house, I'm like, I'm probably not coming back. Mm. Um, and I never would tell my family or friends that because they'd be like, well, don't go. But uh, you can't be fearful of living your dream and leaving, living your passion and your mission. This is a, this is like a ministry to me. I mean, this is what I do. And to take the, the gifts that I've been blessed with and then just sit on them because I'm afraid to use them would be, would be bad, would be a sin. So um, I've learned that no matter what I will, have my calling and do my calling, fulfill my calling. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I, I, I picture that you have really developed and I, you know, I know people can't see the visual, but I can actually feel it from you that you, every of the, every experience you have has penetrated deep into you as a, as a person, not as a woman, but as a human being. And you're able to, you know, let go of the fear and transform that into tell a good story. So you're able to really stay engaged wherever you are. Um, and I can, I can, you know, I can see it in you that it allows you to be your best self as a journalist. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And to, um, and then when, I mean, I'm always a journalist, um, but then just to show up in a way in the world that uh, when I'm not necessarily reporting, but just, you know, in, in the neighborhood or you know, with my family or with my friends show up in a way that's intentional and not phone it in, but really be present. And I think uh, a lot of Americans have a hard time being present. We've got so many distractions with phones and TV and um, laptops and social media and emails, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. But um, one of the things I've learned in being in uh, in developing countries or even developed countries that have been bombed is when people are sitting around with their families and they have nothing but um, conversation and each other is that those families feel much more connected than I think many American families mm. because they're, they're telling stories. I remember, um, was it 2015? I go to South Sudan every year, although I have not been able to get in for 18 months or two, almost two years. I can get in, but I probably wouldn't get out. So I'll, I'll go after the, I'll go in early part of 2019. Sorry. Why, why, what do you mean? Explain well, that. it's been, it's been dangerous since 2013. They had a, um, um, a civil war uprising between the two leading um, factors. The vice, the president's president's ethnic group uh, is Dinka and the vice president's 
ethnic group is Nuer, and they've they've been struggling uh, for quite some time. And so when the peace agreement was signed in 2005, um, Westerners said, great, now we'll, you know, you guys should be the leaders. Uh, and so while on paper it looks, sounds good to have the two warring factions as president and vice president, it didn't quite work out because there were some other issues they didn't really talk about. It's like putting a dysfunctional marriage back together without really dealing with the real issues. Mm. So um, in 2013, so I went back in 13, 14, 15, things just kept getting bad. 16, I think was the last time I was there. So in 2015, when I went for three months, um, I uh, was embedded with a family. Uh, Daniel Majolk guy was a former lost boy of Sudan and came to Denver and got his undergraduate degree and working on his master's. Anyway, I was embedded with them. I lived with them for three months to tell a story, to help, to report, and to also help him with some projects he was working on around um, educating girls and women and boys and men around HIV AIDS awareness and prevention. Mm. So at night, uh, I would sit with the family and they're speaking in their native tongue. This uh, was Dinka. And I didn't understand what they were saying, but it was, but they were telling stories of their uh, ancestors and recent relatives and current relatives and, and really connecting and, and passing on stories and issues and ideas and thoughts and um, love in a way that connected them on a much deeper level than, than I had ever experienced as a kid. So I tried to bring that back here and do my best to connect with the people I love in a way that's not around uh, an electronic. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to give up texting or emailing. I, that, I just wouldn't be smart for my career and I just wouldn't do it anyway. But when we have an opportunity to really be and sit with somebody and be in their presence and look them in the eye and talk about how you feel, I think it brings us closer than, than we realize. We take it yeah. for granted. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And I actually, you know, I, I made a note here because I had a conversation with a group of women a couple of weeks ago. And as we were finishing up this really deep conversation we were having about our challenges as being entrepreneurs, and we recognized that in that moment, the fact that we like turned our phones off and sat across from each other instead of doing emails or conference calls, that full hour that we connected was something that none of us had done really that significantly in a really long time. And I think that that's, I think that's huge in all aspects of our life. It's a mm -hmm. very good reminder that connecting to another person is, is so critical. Mm -hmm. And it leads me back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, it, we are less likely to say, just go bomb them in an inter international conflict. Or when we're talking about our family members, we're less likely to say, well, that, you know, cousin so-and-so, what an idiot, you know. Mm -hmm. um, let's take the time to, to figure out what's going on in his or her life. And I think that connect, talking face-to-face, -face, if at all possible, even, even if you have to Skype with somebody, mm -hmm. um, but especially if, if you put down the electronics and you're able to see somebody's face and their energy, um, it brings us to a space where um, we're just much more compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. It brings, it brings out the human side of us that has been so lost in this digital age. So mm -hmm. lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're still of the generation of people that grew up without technology. Mm -hmm. um, and I, when I try to explain that to my kids, they, I didn't have that when I was your age, there was no like 
if you wanted to see your friend, you either walked three blocks down the road and knocked on their door, or maybe used that telephone that had the big long cord out of the wall and you, and you called right. them and you made plans, but there was no other way to do it. And it's just going to be a different time moving ahead with people that have don't know how to do that because I don't yeah. think that we teach people, especially in the United States, because we are not good at that storytelling. We're not necessarily good at that art of, of really connecting. Um, and I think, I think it's going to be a challenge down the road for us in the U S it also, uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to social media bash by any means, but it, it also um, helps the cowards, the racist cowards, the racist um, the chauvinistic cowards, the, uh, all of those um, people who were, are sitting at home in the comfort of their device for them to exude their hatred. Instead of wearing a white cape and a hood, now it's a different kind of clan member coming out to say um, the ugly things that they want to say because there, there's, there's, what are you going to do? Find me on Twitter. You don't know what my address is. Yeah. Right. Right. And that brings up a good question I have for you. And that's that let's talk a little bit about the amount, the sheer quantity of information and whether it's real news or, you know, what's fed at us on headlines that come across all, I mean, cause everybody's social media, they share things from other people without even looking if it's a valid source. And uh -huh. this is a real problem. I mean, let me ask you, like, how do we decipher this? How do we handle all the information that's coming at us? How do we really get the true facts of what's going on? Well, it's going to take work. It takes work. People aren't going to like this answer, but they're going to have to do some work. You can't just roll up with uh, a bib on to the TV or your laptop or, or phone and say, feed me news. You mm -hmm. can't just say, hey, I'm a liberal, so I'm going to watch this particular station or I'm a conservative so I'm going to watch this particular station um, and a lot of people don't even want to start there because mm -hmm. they want to um, reinforce what what they already believe but for those who are really interested in finding out the truth I always say you know we're, we're used to reading I mean imagine those old-time newspapers you know you hold it in your hands and you read from top to bottom mm -hmm. I say read um, across the board what I mean by that is if you're watch, if you're getting your news from your uh, digitally from your laptop, your computer, your phone, put up several tabs and take a topic, and then see what is CNN saying? What is Fox News saying? Oh, and more importantly, let's look at some other news organizations that aren't um, we don't typically think about, like uh, La Voz or the Urban Spectrum or other um, Black and Latino. Mm -hmm. uh, newspapers and, and magazines to see what those communities are saying. I also think we need to be careful about, and this is, people don't get this, they just think it's a typo. It, there are a few more typos in, in papers like the Denver Post, New York Times, maybe than there were five or 10 years ago because there's fewer people. But by and large, you're not gonna find gross grammatic uh, typos. So when you see um, the, the, uh, the adjective, coming after the noun, for example, mm. that means that probably means somebody who's not a, an English uh, speaker, a native oh. speaker, and not even a native speaker. Say if you're, say you grew up speaking Arabic and now you're, now you know English fluently. What I'm talking about is the likelihood that that paper, that article was written someplace, I don't want to name a country to, to uh, disparage them, but it was, it, it was a spinoff 
uh, it was a made up story. So, so just be keenly aware about what you're, what you're reading. And if there's those kind of weird grammatical, um, it's kind of like those emails that we get, Hey, yeah. this is so-and-so I, uh, I'm in wherever Bangladesh and I need a million dollars to get out of jail or whatever. If you send $500,000, well, I'll give you $2 million back. Those kinds of, you know, mm-hmm. you can see in those emails how poorly grammatically it's, it's written. Same right. thing with, um, with news, print news in particular. If there's a picture that you can't, that you are like, hey, is this really for real? Is there really, did somebody really um, run a, a child porno ring out of a pizza shop and Hillary Clinton was funding it and there's a, some sort of photo there? You can, you can, there's ways you can reverse um, image it so you can find out what the source of that picture was. And nine times out of 10, if there's a question in your mind, it probably it's a fake photo. It's really not how to do that. So what that means is that viewers, readers, listeners have to do their homework. And that's going to irk some people. But I'm sorry, if you really want to know what's going on, that's what you need to do. And then as you as the consumer become more knowledgeable about what's going on, you're going to start demanding that. Sort of like, remember, was it like in the early 2000s? Everybody was maybe late 1990s. People were driving Humvees. Suddenly the gas prices go up and it's nearly $3 or more a gallon, even more in uh, places like California. Now suddenly we're looking for, well, I think I need a fuel efficient car because of the demand by the public. Even those manufacturers that make Humvees are now finding ways to make a Prius or something like a Prius to get that energy efficient car. Same with consumers, we as consumers uh, of news. When we demand the truth, that's what's going to uh, sell. Mm. And it's all at the end of the day, you have to sell your product and right. product. Right. It's interesting, but a smaller scale, um, you know, I don't know when you guys are listening to this, but this is our November of 2018 and we just had a midterm election and my daughter got to vote for the first time because she's 18. Mm-hmm. And so she mm-hmm. was looking at all of the issues and on a couple of them, um, and I won't name which ones, but a couple of them, she's like, oh, I'm doing this and this and this and this. And I said, well, wait, so your role, woman, like, what made you decide that? And she said, well, I read an article that said, this is bad and this is bad and this is bad. So that's what I'm voting. And I said, well, how do you know that that's accurate? And she was kind of surprised. And so I I referred her to like three different opposing views on those particular topics that were being voted on. And um, I don't know, I didn't ask her to, if she changed her vote, but what I do know is that I made her think about where Mm -hmm. she got the information to make that decision. And I think that that's one of the, one of the challenges is when you see some information and you relate to it and you go, aha, yes, you just believe it. Mm-hmm. And I, and in so many cases, it's not true. And, and I think that I'm pretty good about looking at a variety of sources when I want to find an answer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I end up just getting really upset because then I realize how much of the information out there is actually false. Right. And it, it just disheartens me that that's what, that's what we have to view. And that's, it's the, it's normally a lot of the first stuff that comes to us, especially if it's through social media, it's people sharing not factually based news. Um, it right. could just be an opinion, but it's not factually based news. And people take that as gold and run with it. And I find it just disheartening. It's hard. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, and local news is, I'm not trying to put down local news at all, but it's a little bit worse about this. You know, say, 
something across, comes across this Simon Desk, this press release, just to be silly. Chocolate is good for you. Eating a candy bar every day is great for you. Oh, and I would ask, well, who came up with that study? Oh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It was, you know, with this, this let's lead with this. this people will get interested. But if you, find, if you look, it's not even fine print. The study was done by a Hershey's company. You know, <laughs> well, of course they're going to say that. Now, I'm not saying that they're lying. Yeah. But what if you say, you know, this particular company says that a chocolate bar every day is good for you. We asked, you know, physicians their, their advice in there. So it's a matter of, from the news angle, news producing, news gathering angle, rather than just taking something verbatim, even if it's the police. So what if the, I'm sorry, the police said it. I don't know. I've seen a couple of corrupt cops. Can we corroborate what they're saying to make sure that we're getting, we as journalists are getting uh, accurate information, but then also we're able to disseminate that information accurately as well. So that's why, um, again, you mentioned this is November, 2018. Earlier this month, I just cringed and literally got sick to my stomach when I saw the president of the United States telling reporters to sit down telling them to shut up that's a stupid question and getting agitated because reporters journalists were doing their job in a professional way to ask the questions that needed I to be saw asked. that I saw that actually I, I watched it at live and it I was know. like oh my gosh I was yeah. flabbergasted no matter what side of the the uh, political aisle you're on, that should worry every single American, not just journalists, but every single American. That should really upset you. That your 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 people who are out there to get information for you are being told they need to shut up, sit down, and that their questions are stupid and racist. Mm. That's a problem. Yeah. So back to how do we discern the information? Like I said, compare the 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 stories. To, with two or three or four different um, news organizations, and especially places that, that you wouldn't typically look at, including yeah. like Politico. Yeah, like, and, and some of those are independent, you know, because there's, you know, there's different, there's different spins, you know, or different interests in presenting things in a certain way, even if it's factually correct. And so I think that that's really good advice. And I hope people will do that, especially mm -hmm. now. It's more, it, not that it hasn't been important, but especially now it's even more important that we give our attention to mm -hmm. really figuring out the facts because it's creating so much tension everywhere, locally, at statewide, nationally. We see it all over and people don't have their facts right. That's half of the problem right now. People don't have the information correct. They don't have the information correct. And because of social media, again, I'm not bashing social media, yeah. but because things can go viral so quickly, I mean, fake news is nothing new. I, I mean, you, we, we can trace it back to um, the, the 70s, even, even before that, like this country was built um, with two different papers that specifically were focused on PR for different parties. But if you look at in, in, in the 70s, um, I think in the late 70s, the the uh, KGB, we finally realized, was, was planting these lies about HIV AIDS and how it was created, and that it was built to uh, demolish the, the uh, Africans and gay people. Well, there might be some pieces of truth around that when it comes to um, helping find a cure. It really was a lie that was planted by the KGB. I mean, so it's the, the truth is out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you just have to take time yeah. to, uh, to to want to know the truth, and if you want your opinion, have your opinion, but just at least know the truth. 
I think that's really great advice. And um, let me ask you a question. I have a question here that I've been kind of curious about. And, you know, in terms of your truth and the, the stories that you've shared, what do you think has made the most impact? You know, what, what story have you covered or, or what have you produced that you feel has made, made the most impact? The most impact on me or the most impact to mm. the viewers? Good question. Let's start with you. <laughs> Cause that's a biggie. This is, this is mm -hmm. about, this is about the you, you know, <laughs> this is about, you know, um, two, I mean, my, a bunch of stories come to mind that impact me. Um, a bunch of stories, a number of stories come to mind. I think of two to narrow them down on the uh, international level, you know, uh, reporting on uh, genocide and slavery and crimes against humanity sort of in one ball there is, um, I just, you know, when I'm in the field and I'm, I'm reporting on it and interviewing people and asking questions, you know, I've got my stuff together. But when I come back, I'm like, how can this really be happening? And so how, how has it impacted me? I think it's impacted, and I haven't thought of it in this way uh, um, intentionally, but, uh, the, but now that you acted, I think it's gotten me uh, deeper in my faith because I've always, when people have asked me, well, if God is good, then why does he or she let um, these things happen? And I've always said, well, that's why he created us. That's um, so now I, I've always believed that, but now I just really walk with that intentionality mm -hmm. that uh, I was created to report on those stories. Mm -hmm. Like I'm the one that needs to, to bring light to them. I mean, yeah. that's your purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the other um, story that impacted me on a national level uh, or local level was uh, um, this young man um, stole a car, young uh, black teenage kid. What was he? Gil was maybe 15 or 16 at that time. And, you know, I'm not going to say who hasn't stolen a car in their life. Okay, I haven't stolen a car. Yeah. But he went through, he went through a stop sign um, and uh, he hit a uh, police car. And uh, a, a rookie was in that police car who was, uh, was killed uh, from his injuries and the impact in the car. So um, it's kind of a long story, but long story short, I happened to have a, a videographer that I worked with with the particular station I was working with in the area covering something else late at night. He heard the police scanner went over there, shot video of the accident um, and shot video of the uh, paramedics and police officers killing the suspect hand behind his back, handcuffed, on the ground, kicking him in the head and in the neck and back, right? So that's one problem. Other problem was, uh, and I, I can't imagine what it's like to lose someone to such a violent death for this police officer. And I've always said, I, I, my heart and prayers continue to go out to that family. With that said, the police officers on the scene, the PIO, public information officer, swore for a week that this young kid was going over 90 miles an hour and that's the impact killed the rookie officer. When the truth was revealed, the forensics on the, the uh, investigation came out about this the, with the um, tire skids on the pavement. He was only going 35 miles an hour, still stole a car, granted, 
but because the police officers typically don't wear seatbelts, so they can get out of their car quickly or for whatever reason, they don't, the impact was just enough to kill this rookie. Mm -hmm. So here is a veteran officer who's white. The rookie is Latino. The suspect is African-American male teen. And you have a black reporter going, whoa, 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 something's wrong with this. This can't be right. So as I did more investigating and telling more of the story, um, the, um, my car was tampered with. I'll just put it lightly. I had other news organizations, including national organizations, coming and knocking on my door at home to get me on camera. Is this another Rodney King situation? Because it was shortly after Rodney King and the the riots in, in LA it, and uh, even news organizations, um, one investigative report in particular came to my station to try to interview me and make me the story. And I kept saying, I'm not the story. Look at the tape. This kid's neck was broken by officers there to, to serve and protect the entire scene, not just their fellow officer. So that impact, impacted me a great deal. Yeah, and I really, I really talk about it. Yeah, it was yeah. a tragedy. The family lost an officer. The uh, young man got major um, charges and sentencing against him. Uh, I, I want to say it was manslaughter, vehicular manslaughter. Um, and, you know, it impacted me as thinking I was doing something right by exposing something awful mm -hmm. and becoming um, the target of violence mm -hmm. myself. Wow, that's, that's very impactful. Thank you for sharing that story. It's crazy. How about a story that you've covered where you've made the greatest impact on society? Other than that, that's a big one. I mean, that's, mm. that's, there's so many. You know, so I, I didn't ever think about it like that. I just assume that somebody reads something and I just say, hey, I turn over to God. They'll, they'll do what they need to do with the information. I hadn't really until recently started thinking about, well, what, did, what, were, what were the outcomes? What did I, what did I see? Um, well, the story um, with the, the police officer um, who was killed and uh, the young man who was in prison for stealing a car and uh, inadvertently killed this officer, because of the tape and because of my pushing that that tape be released, and shown not just at our station, um, well, it wasn't really, I mean, we had it, it was our, our video, but because I kept reporting on it, um, there were some standards uh, set, or I'll say enforced about how paramedics and police officers uh, treat suspects in the field. Mm -hmm. um, those were already in place, but now we had it on, in tape, on tape going, that that's not what they're doing. So let's see, two or three paramedics were fired in that particular case. Um, I think three or four police officers were suspended. And what that meant was that the center reverberation throughout those departments saying that you have a job to do and you are not the jury and the judge. Mm. You are there to, to protect the seat and to, and to get that, that space safe. So in that regard, I guess I made a difference. And when it comes to international, I don't know. I just, I just hope that and pray that that somebody hears or sees something and they feel like they can connect and recognize that um, people are, are just people. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that until recently when people said, well, how do you, why do you keep going? What, what's changed since you were last in South Sudan? I can give you some numbers, but my heart feels like there has been a change. And yeah. that's, why, that's why I started this initiative called Be Brilliant. Yeah. 
Good. I wanted to talk about that. Tell me about it. Okay. Yeah. If we have time, I'd just like to say, so when I go to places um, and, and I'm speaking specifically uh, around the world, but I could certainly do this in the U.S. I just feel like the, the need and opportunity is the, the need, or, need is greater and the, the opportunities are fewer in yeah. developing places, particularly in a conflict zone where I go and I'll tell a story. And as you said, have I made a difference? And I feel like, okay, maybe somebody will see this story on whatever uh, channel um, or they will read a blog or um, they might hear something uh, in a radio interview. But then um, I feel like maybe I haven't done enough to really make a difference in, in any uh, way. So, and have I really had a chance to connect the viewer Mm. with that particular space. So what I started doing is I found these solar light, lights. A lot of people use them for camping. Mm. They're only you know four by five inches or five by six or whatever inches big. You blow them up, inflate them like a beach ball, oh. a little beach ball. You turn them over and there's a solar panel sitting in the sun all day. And then at night it runs for like seven or eight hours. And so what does that mean? It means that um, women are less vulnerable because they have uh, lighting if they need to walk around kids if they're lucky to have books can still do their homework um i gave a number of those uh, to some farmers in uganda earlier this year who once they were finished farming on one side of this lake would have to take a boat across to there where they lived so now they have a little bit of lighting with these Mm. solar uh, lamps they can go which will keep them safer keep them safer so Mm. 1.2 billion people around the world uh, don't have electricity. So with this, maybe people can have a, a safer life. And so people can go to my website and say, hey, I, I want to help Tamara do what she does. So the Be Brilliant piece is around for 20 bucks. You know, you get on my website, put it in my PayPal, and I um, buy these these solar lamps. And then I'll take them in the next time, two or three times a year when I go into nice. these conflict zones and give them away to the people on behalf of, of the donors. So it's then it be brilliant also is um, a way we show up in the world. Mm. So it's not just the physical light being brilliant, but it's the light within ourselves. How are we brilliant? How are we being brilliant uh, at the grocery store in, in the cars and not getting involved with road rage? How are we connecting with our loved ones? Are we being brilliant? And that's a question I think we all need to uh, ask ourselves. Have you set that up as a nonprofit? I have not set it up as a nonprofit yet. Well, you might be talking to somebody who can help you with that. Really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's my space. And I would love, I, I like that a lot. I think it's, it's almost like you're providing your people that have, um, you know, either connected with you through your journalism or through you as an individual, um, as a call to action, you know, exactly. you're providing, here's the situation, but you're giving them a call to action as a solution. So I think that's wonderful. So how can people find out more about Be Brilliant? TamaraMBanks.com. Go to my website and um, you can find out everything you need to know. So you'll, you'll see a little uh, background about me, but then you'll also um, be able to find, uh, um, information about the, um, uh, be brilliant piece is and, there. Yeah. And all the information I think is on your site too, about your speaking. Uh-huh. And if somebody wants you for an MC or all the professional things that you do, people can yeah, find yeah. that on your site. Now, what do Absolutely. people want to find and listen to either your documentaries or any of your stories? I mean, how would they find your pieces? So there's uh, a couple of pieces, a few pieces on my website. There's also uh, a number of pieces on uh, YouTube. Just go to Tamara Banks, Tamara Banks 
Sudan, Tamara Banks, Crimes Against Humanity, something around that. You can find a number of my, my stories there. I'll put a few links in the show notes so people can go okay. and, mm-hmm. and find more information, mm-hmm. which is awesome because mm-hmm. people are totally going to want to go hear any of your documentary <laughs> or stories now. And Tamara, I'm, I'm so thankful that you're able to come on because you're doing extraordinary things. And as a woman, um, I'm grateful for your voice and the work that you do to bring stories and truth to our world. I think you're one of a kind. Oh, that's so kind of you, Tavarlene. I'm so blessed and honored to be part of this. And I just, like I always say, I just do what I do. God moves through me and I just try to show up every day. I love it. Well, my last question for you is, um, my show is called Grit and Grace. And I like to say that if you ask me the question, what percentage of grit and grace I am, it always depends on the day. But, (laughs) But for you, what percentage of grit and grace are you? Mm, yeah, I would say it depends on the day. Um, I think um, overall, probably 50-50 because it does depend mm. on the day. Some some days are um, just, oh my gosh, I got to grit and get through this. But I don't think that you should have one without the other. Right. I'll say that, that you can't really, I don't think I show up with one without the other because you could just have, if you just had grits, then you'd be kind of, grumpy and kind of because you can have grit and be sort of salty or you could just have grace and just be sort of like maybe not as focused but i think the balance of grit and grace you know the grit gives us the muscle the grace gives us the the finesse um to be able to get through that grit in a way that's um full of compassion and love even if you're dealing with difficult situations so um i hope that i have a balance of both yeah, that's what I strive for as well. Although I probably sit more like 70% grit and 30% grace. <laughs> Maybe especially in these hard days of starting my business, I, I still have a lot of that. But I've, I, my goal is 50-50. I do think you are correct that that's, that's the ideal place to be. Right, right. That's, well, that's my hope. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and my friends. Isn't she amazing? Um, the woman behind the stories, you know, she puts herself out there from local um, local issues that, you know, we're facing and that she covers to, you know, worldwide international um, matters. And I think that Tamara has a view that is her lens includes kindness and compassion, but is still so factual that, you know, she truly is the package of everything that I want in a journalist Mm -hmm. that's reporting to me. So thanks again, Tamara and my friends, you know, I always tell you, I finish by telling you to go out and be fierce. And today I want to add, I want you to go out and be fierce and also, um, use your voice, use your voice to share your truth and make sure that you understand and keep researching what's going on in our world.